Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen, amen. Good morning, you guys. How's everybody doing? Good, good. My name is Robert. I am one of the pastors here at Crosspoint. It's good to see you all again here this morning, or if you're worshiping with us online at home. We're glad to, uh, to have you here with us today. Our text this morning is Psalm 16. Psalm 16. So while you're turning there, I'd uh, grab one of the Bibles under the seat in front of you, or if you've got your own Bible, turn to Psalm 16. Uh, I think it's just helpful to have a copy of the Bible sitting in front of you. I know it'll be on the screen, but the more we can make ourselves familiar with where things are in the Bible, the better. And, uh, and especially when it comes to the Psalms, they are an overlooked, oftentimes, part of Scripture. Uh, we're familiar with some of the, the greatest hits, maybe, your Psalm 23s, your Psalm 1s, you know. Uh, but, uh, but I think it, it would really serve God's church uh, if we became more and more familiar with the Psalms. In fact, uh, this month, Wednesday nights, here in the sanctuary, uh, we will be going through, as Tyler mentioned, the, the Psalms, various different Psalms. Uh, Tyler kicked us off last week with Psalm 67. Uh, we haven't uploaded the audio for that yet, but hopefully it'll be there soon, and I encourage you to listen to that. Uh, this Wednesday, Paul will be teaching on Psalm 23. Uh, and so please come. Let's, let's gather around God's Word together. Let's fellowship with one another. Let's enjoy a meal together. Or if, if you're not going to be able to do that, at least come for the teaching time, which starts at 6.30 right here in the sanctuary. Uh, the Psalms teach us how we can come to the Lord. Tyler articulated this so well Wednesday night. The Psalms give us a, a framework, maybe even sometimes a sort of script, so that we can come before the Lord and speak to him. And not only so that we know how to speak to him, but we also, as we read and study the Psalms, we are better able ourselves to shape and direct our own emotions. The Psalms are the word of God as if God is speaking to God. It's God's way of showing us how to speak to him and even how to process some complex, difficult problems. Sin, death, hell, all of it. The Psalms help us to speak to God and bring these concerns before him. So I encourage you to familiarize yourself with the Psalms. I didn't really intend to go this far into telling you you should read the Psalms, but I'm going to keep going. One really helpful way that I found to do this is to work through the book of Psalms once a month, which sounds a lot more daunting than it really is. Uh, there's 150 Psalms. There's generally going to be about 30 days in a month, which means roughly you've got five Psalms allotted to each day of the month. I'm not telling you to read five Psalms a day, but... If you just take whatever day you're on and you multiply that by five, you have a general idea of what range of Psalms you should maybe look at for that day. So January 1st, you look at Psalms 1 through 5, pick one. See whatever the heading is that, that your Bible gives it, whatever title it gives it, and, and, and just read it. Start your morning that way. Go before the Lord with the Psalm. I found that really helpful. I want to be more literate about this book, and I, and I hope that that might uh, encourage you to do the same. So we are in Psalm 16 this morning. Let me, let me read the text for us, and then I'll pray. This is a psalm of David. In particular, it's called a miktam of David. We don't really know what that word means, actually, in, in Hebrew, but it's some sort of musical, liturgical kind of term. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. 
I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their name on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the paths of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Forevermore. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you for this passage. We thank you for your word to us. You, you have spoken to us first. You have initiated this conversation. And so we respond in prayer. We respond asking that you might speak to us more, even more clearly, that you might pinpoint things in our own hearts and in our minds that need to be more attuned to your word, that would cause us to delight in Christ more, that would help us to see gospel truths more clearly, that we would be able to walk through this life and help others to do the same in a way that honors you and brings glory to your name and joy to your people. That's what we ask for this morning. I pray that you would quicken our hearts, that you would give us eyes and ears that we might see and hear what you have for us today through your word. And we ask that now in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. What, uh, what sustains you? What sustains you? What's, what's the foundation, the foundational truths, underpinnings of your life? Um, not so much where should you go, but where do you go when your life hangs in the balance? And I think we maybe don't realize how often our lives actually hang in the balance. I think it happens a lot more than we realize. Every temptation, every trial, even success and happiness present us with opportunities to take one step closer to heaven or to hell. There's, there's really no neutral event. There's no neutral moment in your life. You are moving towards the Lord or you are moving away from him. Your life is always hanging in the balance. Sometimes you realize it and sometimes you don't. David presents a very simple request here to the Lord. Right there, the opening, the opening words. He says, preserve me, O God. And, and it's clear that whatever David is facing is gravely Serious, because he concludes this psalm with a reference to Sheol, which is, which is another, which is like a name for the realm of the dead in Hebrew understanding. Don't think of it so much as hell, like a place of moral judgment for eternity. Think of Sheol as more like the kind of the concept of, of like Hades, like where, the realm of the dead. Where, where do the dead go when they die? And in kind of the Hebrew conception, there's, there's this idea that when you're dead, there's this, there's this sort of place, maybe even an abstract idea. Nevertheless, 
Sheol is a, is a, is a grave place. Um, it's a signifier of death and, and decay and destruction. David is thinking as deep as the grave as he, as he pens this psalm. And he comes before the Lord seeking preservation. What, what are you seeking preservation from? What are ways that we need preservation? Like I said, our, our lives are always hanging in the balance. There's always life and death presented to us every, every day, every moment. Where are you seeking preservation? Is it the weight of sin? Do you feel the weight of your sin? Maybe some of you are wrestling with that lately. And it's not as though you've given yourself over to sin, you just, but you feel the weight of your sin in the past or sin that you're tempted towards even now. Sin that you're prone to in your own, in your own soul, in your own personality. Is it the burden of suffering in a fallen world? Maybe it's not your sin. Maybe it's the sins of others. Or maybe it's just the, the burden of being in a world that, is, that has, has rebelled against God. And therefore, all the consequences of that are borne out on us day in and day out all the time. Personally, through people we know and love, through, through impersonal forces that are beyond our control Maybe, maybe in your mind, even now, you're thinking of millions of things, big and small, that demand your attention. Maybe you're having difficulty focus, focusing right now, because in the back of your mind, you're thinking of all the ways you have to keep the world in orbit. All the little things that you have to do, where everything falls apart, the earth spins out of control, flies out of the galaxy, and, and everything burns up. Maybe it's just some sort of nameless fear. You can't pinpoint it. You just, there's, you're being hunted, and you can't really explain how or why you feel that way. You just feel like you are being hunted. Maybe you're afraid of the judgment of other people, of your family, of your friends, of people you work with, of total strangers, people whose opinions of you you know absolutely do not matter, and yet you fear what it is they might think of you. Or maybe... You fear the judgment of God himself. You know, have, I, have I been remorseful enough for my sin? Have I been responsible enough or fruitful enough with the gifts that the Lord has given me? These sorts of questions, maybe they plague you and, and you feel as though death is right there at your door because there's just nothing you can do. See, we are prone to feeling the weight of death when we are reminded of the limits that we have, when we are reminded of our own mortality of our own failure, of our own inability, of our own sin. All these things cause us to remember death, to remember that we are finite, that we are mortal, and that on some level we are helpless. See, we can't sustain the world ourselves. We can't even sustain ourselves. We are more self-destructive than we are self-sustaining. You feel the weight of this. Maybe, maybe this is something you're dealing with now or have dealt with in the past. Maybe, surely, this is something that you will face in the future. I'm reminded of, of Cain's life, uh, illustrated in Genesis 4. He's a fugitive. He's murdered his brother. The Lord casts him far from Eden, the very scene of creation, the, the, the cradle of life. Cain is sent out, and Cain's overriding concern is that by being sent out as a murderer into the world, that he himself will suffer the same fate, that, that he's subject to the, 
the judgments and wickedness and cruelty of mankind. He knows that firsthand. And in Genesis 4.13, he, he goes before the Lord. He says, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Whoever finds me, he says, will kill me. But even then, the Lord's relationship with Cain is marked by preservation. Because there in verse 15, the Lord literally puts a mark on Cain's forehead. Some way of, of denoting to the world that Cain is off limits. The Lord preserves even someone like him from the vengeance of, of his own sin. I think of Psalm 16, I want us to think of Psalm 16 with this sort of perspective. It's an interesting psalm and in that it begins, preserve me, O God, it concludes, save me from, from the depths of Sheol, from, from the corruption that is there. And there are a lot of psalms that do this sort of thing, that use this sort of language, and yet they all tend to really mine the depths of the despair of the psalmist. But here in Psalm 16, if you didn't read these first verses and closing verses, you would think David was on some sort of a picnic with the Lord. Because the way he writes the psalm, the, the words that he encourages Israel to sing, the words that we are encouraged to sing as God's people today, is so hopeful and so built around the glory of the Lord and David's delight in the Lord that otherwise you would have no idea what it is that David's facing. It's remarkable. It's a striking feature of this psalm. Despite the life and death language, it, it feels like a, like a sunny vacation. So like David, I want us to see that in the midst of all these things, even the moments when death itself seems most imminent, we must turn to the Lord and see him for what he is, which is our beautiful inheritance. Our beautiful inheritance. In verse 1, David justifies his request for God's preservation. He says, in you I take refuge. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. So let's trace David's thoughts here and see what it means to take refuge in God. All right? First point here, number one, first of all, taking refuge in God means turning to him. And that may seem kind of obvious. I don't want to overstate this. I don't think this is a major, major emphasis of this passage. But I think it is one of the first points that we have to come to when we consider what it looks like to take refuge in the Lord. None of this psalm even makes sense if David hasn't, first of all, determined in his own heart, I'm going to turn to the Lord. I'm going to take this before the Lord. And so he goes to him. In the words of the psalm, generally, what we're talking about here is, is generally orienting your heart towards God, but also literally going before him, bringing your concerns before him in prayer, reflecting on his word, gathering with his people. It's no, it's no coincidence that this psalm is not intended as just a, a song of David. It is part of Israel's own hymn book. This is how they would corporately worship the Lord together. I think likewise, there's a lot of value, there's merit in bringing our concerns before the Lord together. Not just in singing, but even as we meet and as we're gathering with one another, as we share one another's burdens. 
Maybe it sounds kind of obvious. Well, of course we go to the Lord. How else do you take refuge in the Lord? Of course you have to go to him. And yet, how often, I mean, consider all the other places that we go first naturally. We don't have time to get into all the places you go first. But I know you know what I'm talking about. Think of the number of times that you are burdened by any number of things, and yet the last place we seem to want to go is before the Lord with it. And sometimes this may be because we're ashamed or feel unworthy, but sometimes it's because we think it's something we can deal with ourselves or or something that somebody else can deal with for us. Or maybe if we just don't talk about it with anybody, let alone the Lord, it simply doesn't exist. It's not a thing that we have to worry about. What we're talking about here when when we say taking refuge in God, bringing your concerns, bringing your things before the Lord, turning to him, this isn't something merely performative as a display, but this is something that needs to be and should be genuine. I think of common cliches that that we use from time to time. Um, You know, things like, God's got this. You know, we say that. Or at least that's the spirit of what we say. Oh, God's got it. God's got this. But, but, do we, but do we actually turn Do we turn to the Lord? Or is that just some sort of mental band-aid to kind of keep us pushing forward to ignore whatever's going on around us? Or sometimes we say things like, let go and let God. Let go and let God, you know. It's very easy advice to give to other people. It's oftentimes easy advice to swallow yourself. That's not the same thing as genuinely, truly going before the Lord, bringing your cares and concerns to him. It's not the same thing. So first, we we need to turn to him. Second, taking refuge in God means acknowledging his authority and all-sufficient goodness. See, David begins this psalm with really two declarations about his relationship with the Lord. And I think these help us to define what it means to take refuge in him and why it is that David can so boldly say that that he wants the Lord to preserve him. First of all, David, in verse 2, he humbles himself before God's authority and sovereignty. He says to the Lord, you are my Lord. There's no question. Who serves whom? David serves the one true God of Israel. That's the direction of his heart. He serves the Lord. Now, it's interesting, your Bible will say this in verse 2, I say to the Lord, and it probably has Lord there in all caps, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. And then what he says to the Lord is, you are my Lord. Maybe that sounds a little redundant. Maybe you're thinking, this is kind of why, why, is, why is this? Could have chosen a different phrase. I want you to understand that when, when that first Lord shows up here, this isn't just a, a general term for God. This is the Lord's divine name, the name that he revealed to Moses and, and all of Israel's descendants, the name Yahweh, present throughout the Old Testament and in our Bible shown with a capital L-O-R-D or sometimes capital G-O-D. Uh, This is God's name. This is his personal calling card for his people. This is how he has chosen to reveal himself to them and to no one else on the face of the earth. The Lord gives them access to him by giving them this name. And so when David says that he calls the Lord, 
Yahweh, his Lord. He's saying, I have called you, Israel's God, my master, my Lord, my authority, the one who dictates all my steps, the one who determines what is good and bad, the one who determines what is worthy of my pursuit and what is worthy of my disdain. I yield my opinions. I yield my concerns and cares to you. That's, that's what David's saying. And don't forget that David is Israel's king. All right, this isn't just some random Israelite saying this. This is the, the model Israelite. This is the head Israelite, the chief Israelite of all the Israelites saying this very thing. It, it's reminiscent of Proverbs. If you look at Proverbs 1, 7, uh, it says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Proverbs 9, 10, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Proverbs 15, 33, the fear of the Lord is instruction in wisdom and humility comes before honor. See, it's not coincidental that the writer of Proverbs links humility with fearing God. It's not coincidental that the writer of Proverbs links wisdom and knowledge with fearing, knowing the Lord and coming before him with awe. See, David is the king but he submits to an almighty God. David has authority and power to do and say and come and go as he pleases and beckon others to do the same, but he yields to almighty God. That's, that's David. And, and I think for us to truly take refuge in God, it begins with seeing him as our Lord and master. Uh, maybe, this, maybe this scares you. Right? Because yielding to God is not typically how we want to address sin, death, and hell. Very often, that is the last thing we want to do is, is yield to him, allow him to be in charge, allow him to call the shots and take control and dictate how we are to respond and interact with these various things. It's natural for us to suppress the truth about God, even the truth about the gospel, and to try to resolve these sorts of things ourselves. That's our natural tendency, this side of Genesis 3. I mean, think about it. When you're faced with the, the reality of your sin, how often do you attempt to justify yourself or just ignore it altogether? How ready are we to do or say what needs to be done or said when being passive in these things might actually preserve the peace or save us from some sort of embarrassment? How often do we zero in on our fear and anxiety without taking a breath and seeing the big picture of a sovereign king on his throne? Oh man, you can, you can take rest. You can draw comfort from the fact that our God is in the heavens and he does all that he pleases. That's not bad news. That's, that's some of the greatest news you will ever hear. David declares his humility before the Lord. He says, you are my Lord, you are my God, you are my master. But David also sees the big picture of God's all-sufficient goodness. He says also in verse 2, I have no good apart from you. 
I have no good apart from you. See, the Lord's goodness is, it's all-encompassing. It is all-surpassing. There, there, there is, there's really no such thing as something being good unless the Lord deems it to be so. There's, in David's mind, there is no such thing as goodness itself, except that the Lord is the one who defines goodness. In his very essence, he is goodness. He is good. This is illustrated in this psalm by, by two contrasting lifestyles, two ways of, of relating to the goodness of the Lord. You can see the goodness of the Lord as something worthy of all of, your, all of your might, all of your attention, all of your effort, or you can see the goodness of the Lord as one of uh, several other competing sorts of goodnesses and things worthy of your time and attention and devotion. David illustrates this for us with these two types of lifestyles. On the one hand, you have the saints in the land, the holy ones, but then on the other hand, you have those who run after other gods. Let's consider the saints in the land first. These are the holy ones who, like David, take refuge in the God of Israel. And you notice how David says that these people, these types of people, are his delight. He delights in these kinds of people. Because this is what he cherishes himself. This is what he loves most, is, is the goodness of the Lord. You are all of my goodness. And so it's only natural that for David, he looks at the holy ones in the land who feel the same way, and he delights in seeing these people. He delights in knowing these people. He delights in being their king, and not only being their king, but being their fellow Israelite before this almighty and almightily good God. He delights in them. This is not the point of the text, but this is something I, I want us to consider just for a moment. How often do we delight in faithful brothers and sisters? How often do we delight in them? How often do you acknowledge that they exist? Or how often do you, you know, give someone a hug? Hey, it's good to see you. How often do you, do you really reflect on the goodness of the Lord in someone else? Especially among the members of this church, how often do we look at one another and we, we consider just how great the Lord is for the work he's done in someone's life, for the faithfulness that he's brought about in someone's own life, regardless of whatever difficult circumstance they may be facing or the lack thereof of any difficulty, but you see the faithfulness, the steadfastness, the steadiness present in a person's life as they continue to walk with the Lord. Man, it's, it's so encouraging. I think that's just worthy of, of cultivating in our own hearts, especially these days as we gather together more and more, as we're around each other uh, to greater, greater and greater uh, capacity, and as we see one another out and about, and as we're around each other in small groups or in Bible studies or on Wednesday nights or, or just at the grocery store, we need to cultivate an attitude that sees one another as an opportunity to praise the Lord. I, I want to cultivate that attitude of myself. I think sometimes the temptation may be to look at one another, even maybe people that you really love, and, and instead kind of that's an opportunity rather to kind of, oh man, to be frustrated or to be disappointed or to, to think of how, how much further along you wish they were. Of course, the, the 
the problem with that is other people look at you the same way. Um, but what if, what if we were the kind of people who looked at one another, and because we delighted in the Lord so much, when we saw the Lord's presence in one another, we delighted in them as well? Man, I mean, how, how does that change a church? How does that change a, a, a people? What kind of culture do you foster with that mentality? All right, there's the saints in the land. David delights in them. They're exactly the kind of person he wants to be. But then there are those who run after another God. Now, it's interesting. The original text doesn't even really mention the word God there. It just says those who run after another. It's as if David, and he literally says he won't bring their name on his lips. But it's as if David, here in this psalm, he won't even acknowledge that they exist. He doesn't even mention other gods. He just says, hey, other people who fall after another, you know, yeah, I'm not, I'm not going to have anything to do with them or the things that they do, the trappings of their idolatry, all that. He, he won't mention their names. He won't mention what they do. He won't come close to it. But he notes here the outcome of that way of life. And I think it's interesting. He says that, that the result of that way of living is sorrow upon sorrow. They multiply sorrows. And I think that's a good contrast with what David has already said about the holy ones in the land who are his delight you got these two competing ways of living and really two competing outcomes. There's delight, there's joy, there's gladness in the Lord's presence among his people, and then there is sorrow after sorrow among those who have sought after another. Um, you know, it's, it's almost as if David is, is saying, I, I'm not going to go down that path despite my circumstances, whatever he needs preservation from, maybe there's a temptation there for him to pour out some blood offerings himself. Uh, let's just see what works. But David says, I'm not even going to do that. I'm not going to entertain that. I'm not going to get close to that. I won't even mention their names. I find joy and encouragement instead in God's holy people because they're a reflection of him. John 6, 66 through 69, I think is an interesting illustration of this sort of idea. Jesus has just finished teaching some pretty difficult things to a, a crowd of people. And after this, many of his disciples, it tells us, turned back and no longer walked with him. It was so difficult and challenging what he had to say. Verse 67, so Jesus said to the 12 uh, disciples, do you want to go away as well? Do you want to go away as well? I mean, imagine that question. Hey, thanks. I wasn't thinking about it, but now I'm wondering if we're on the same page. Thanks, Jesus. Verse 68, Simon Peter answers him. I love this answer. Lord, to whom shall we go? You, you, you have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Peter asked this question, and we should likewise ask this question. What, I mean, where, where else can we go but the Lord? Right? I mean, where else are you supposed to go? He, he is the source of life itself. That's what Peter says, but that, that's really what David's getting at too. He says, You're, you are all my good. If there is anything good in my life, it is, it is from you. He is the Holy One in whom we find every good thing. 
Taking refuge in the Lord requires seeing him as the source of all good. James 1.17 tells us that every good gift, every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Can you say with David, I have no good apart from the Lord? This is not merely a matter of acknowledgement. Ah, yeah, no, God, yeah, good things. Like, you know, he's in charge. Good things happen. No, no, no. We're talking about a heart that values the gift itself because of the giver himself. See the difference there? There's a difference between just enjoying a gift and then enjoying a gift because of the one who gave it to you. And that's, that's what the Lord calls us to. And I want you to see that that is a greater, that is a much greater, more sustaining joy. Because all the gifts that we get in this life, especially the earthly temporary ones, I mean, these things, they, they fade, they come and go. But as a display of the Lord's kindness and love and goodness, as a display of the Lord's faithfulness to us, see, none of that, none of that fades, none of that changes. And so the, the Lord is the source of, of all good things. Uh, again, what sustains you? And that was our initial question. What brings value to your life? Maybe thinking, I thought we were talking about being preserved from, from death, but I, I think the only, anti, the only, the only r- r- thing we can do here, the only recourse we have is not so much to avoid death, but to then consider all the life that the Lord has for us. What, what brings value to your life? What, what, where is your hope stored? If you turn to Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 24, there's a, an interesting passage here that, that Jesus tells his disciples. Matthew 6, 19 through 24. I, you know, I used to read this passage and kind of see it as sort of three disjointed paragraphs, but especially in light of this psalm and just thinking about it more, I, 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 there's such a, a rich connection here between these three seemingly separate thoughts. And I want you to see it. Jesus tells them, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And he goes on to say, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? And then verse 24, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And money there is actually a a term for, for like, the, like a deified version of money, mammon. So there's these competing gods here. Once again, you notice that. 
Uh, verses 19 through 21 are pretty straightforward. Verses Verse 24 is pretty straightforward. Verse 22 through 23, this is pretty straightforward on their own. But when you take them together, I want you to see the kind of picture that it portrays for us. Verses 19 through 21 clearly point us to this truth that our treasures, the things that we value most, what we delight in, what we store up and, and keep and save for ourselves, because we find them to be valuable. These things, these treasures should be oriented around heaven, which is a way of saying to be oriented around the Lord. Right? And I think we understand that. And then verse 24 points to money. But I think this is kind of another way of, of understanding the sort of materialism and, and sort of treasures that we're talking about. These earthly treasures should be reevaluated and seen in a different light that reflects God's primacy, right? God's firstness. And everything. You can't serve God and money. You serve God or you serve money. You cannot serve both. God must be the overarching delight and worship of your life. But now what connects these two things? We have these two ideas, these two ways of looking at material wealth, of looking at uh, 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 possessions, treasures, money, Right there in between these two things, verses 22 and 23, Jesus says, how we see things dictates our spiritual health. And it's right there. You got to take care of your eyes. Your eyes are like a lamp. They're like the windows of your soul. And what you take in, and not just what you take in, but how you bring in it, how you incorporate things into your world, how you soak up Especially in this case, how you perceive treasures. What are treasures to you? This is refracted and bounced around in your soul. When your eyes are dark and dim, the windows are dark and dim, the light in the house is dark and dim. Uh, but when your eyes are open and illuminated, and they've been windexed and cleaned, and they filter in everything good, and you see things the right way, then what happens inside your soul is transformed, is changed. Your spiritual health is dictated by how you perceive things, especially how you perceive the things that happen around you. Therefore, we need to see every good thing, and I hope you understand this applies more broadly than just to treasures and and money. We need to see every good thing through the lens of God's sovereign goodness and care. This, this changes everything. This is, I mean, this is a real game changer because then what happens is that our problem is not merely external, you know, what we're facing, whatever we're dealing with. The problem, the real issue is more internal, which is to say, how are we facing it? How are we seeing things? Are we seeing things through a proper lens? Um, lately, I've, uh, I've, well, over the last few months, I've gotten really interested in, uh, in digitally restored, colorized photographs. I don't know, it's a sickness. Uh, in part, uh, photographs of like old bar ballparks, which again, there's, there's a sickness there. I have a problem, I'm, I'm telling you. Uh, but there are these, there's so many great old, you know, black and white photos, tattered and torn, you know, negatives and, and, and photos out there. 
uh, of these old historic places, you know, and famous ballplayers and, and historic buildings. And of course, that's true of, I mean, of, of, of any historical photograph, I guess. But it's really fascinating when somebody, especially nowadays, I mean, you can really do some incredible work with an old photograph and restore it so that it, you bring in color and you digitally clarify some things and you, can, you, it's, it, you bring new life. You can bring new life to old photos. You can rejuvenate them and, and make them more immediate and, and really imaginable. I mean, you can kind of put yourself there. You know, the guy with the, the, the bowler hat suddenly feels like you, you could reach out and touch him. Whereas before, maybe it felt distant, unrelatable, lifeless. There's a, there's a shift that happens, though. There's, there's, it's like a lens is put over things, and you see things differently in it. And it changes how you perceive them. It changes how you relate to them. David has an exemplary ability here to see things in the glorious splendor of God's good providence. Everything's in color. He's Dorothy when she wakes up from her dream. No, no, before she, when she's knocked out, he's, Dor- he's Dorothy. He sees things in, in living color because he sees the Lord as, as everything good. He sees the Lord as the, the author, the authority, the sovereign ruler of all good things. So, first, to take refuge in the Lord, we need to turn to him. Second, to take refuge in the Lord, we need to see him as our, our, our master, our Lord, and see him as the source, the, the author of all good things. But third, taking refuge in God means choosing to delight in the Lord above all. Verse 5, David says, The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. See, fully taking refuge in the Lord requires us to value him above all else. In fact, despite all else, good, bad, and different. It's as if David is saying, Lord, whatever predicament I'm in, whatever circumstance I find myself in, you are, in fact, my predicament. You, God, almighty, and all good, you are the circumstance of my life. You see that? I mean, there's an overarching way of seeing things. There's a bigger picture here that David sees, and it looks beyond the circumstances that he's in that are temporary, and it looks to something far greater, far more transcendent, which is God himself. I can't go beyond this. You are my circumstance. And when God is sovereign over everything and good, and does what is good, and is able to do what is good as he pleases, man, what, what other circumstance do you need to be worried about? What other place can you be? I mean, what, what dangers do you, can you face? I've said this before. I feel like I say this a lot. It'd be a nightmare if God was sovereign and not good. I mean, that would be the worst of all possible worlds. If God could do whatever he pleased, but it didn't please him to do good things, that would be a nightmare. I mean, that would be hell. But when God can do whatever pleases him, and it pleases him to do what is good, that's the world we live in. If you are one of his people, that's the God you serve. Verse 6, 
David talks about lines falling in pleasant places. He says, I have a beautiful inheritance. What, what's going on there? What are these lines? They're a reference really to, to like boundaries, like land boundary markers, lines. And I want you to imagine for a second, why is David going here? This is a strange analogy. This is not something we necessarily think about. You know, uh, yeah, I mean, the, the boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. We can understand it, but it's hard for us to maybe relate to it. I want you to imagine being an Israelite for a minute. Godly Israelites, they found their identity in the one true God, right? Like, he's their God, they're his people. Like, that's the defining characteristic. That's the thesis statement for their whole existence is that this is our God. We are his people, etc. History itself for the Israelite begins with rescue from Egyptian captivity, and deliverance to Canaan, the promised land, right? Their inheritance, a place that the Lord takes, sets aside just for them. So consequently, huge portions of the Old Testament, of the law, et cetera, the, uh, devoted to understanding and defining laws about boundaries, inheritances, etc. I mean, the book of Numbers has a couple places where the, the daughters of this particular Israelite who has died are really concerned that as they marry, the land that is actually theirs is going to be passed on to some other family line. And that's a, that's a problem because this is our inheritance. This is what the Lord has given to his people. And so maintaining these boundaries and enjoying your inheritance and establishing your place in the land, that's so important for an Israelite. And it's certainly important for the king of Israel, David. This is an emphasis in the New Testament too, though. I mean, Genesis, uh, Genesis to Revelation, there's a thread you can weave of God's people having a place to call their own. But in Revelation, you get down to it. There's a brand new heavens and earth that descend to earth and overwhelm the earth as a place for God's people. This is our hope. This is what we anticipate. We're looking forward to a city to come, a new Jerusalem, a new place. But see, for David, the king, it's not the land that captivates him so much. Or rather, as much as the land would, would hold value, priceless value for him, he likens it even more to the Lord himself. He says, you are what I value. The Lord is my chosen portion. And because of him, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, he says, I have a beautiful inheritance. The Lord is behind it all. The Lord ultimately is David's beautiful inheritance. This is because David's hope is rooted in the gospel. If you turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. Peter is well known for using a lot of Old Testament sort of language. And I want you to see if you notice a particular word we've been saying a little bit here. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance, there it is, that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. 
what Peter talks about here, and I think what David ultimately is looking at, is the unfading inheritance, the unfading joy of eternity, salvation, and redemption that is won by Christ. David says, Lord, preserve me, but there is no greater preservation than what is found in Jesus. You can face sin, death, and hell itself, but apart from Jesus, you will be destroyed. With Jesus? Who goes before us? Who has has literally taken on sin, death, and hell? He bore our sins in himself. He died on the tree. He conquered death and hell. He conquered the grave. He conquered the land of the dead. Jesus, he is the king over all these things. His authority is supreme. That's where our preservation is found. Man, you want to take refuge in the Lord, you go to Jesus. You want to take refuge in the Lord, you see Jesus as king. You want to take refuge in the Lord, you see Jesus as the all-encompassing goodness with a capital G that he is. There's a reason we call the gospel good news. You want to take refuge in the Lord, you value Jesus more than anything else. Because Jesus is our inheritance. We have no inheritance apart from him. We have no good thing apart from him. See, the Lord is what David cherishes, he says. The Lord is David's heritage and really David's home, David's dwelling place, David's family land. It's the Lord. I want you to consider all the ways that we're shaped by the places we come from, the places we consider to be our homeland. Think of the clothes that you wear, the way that you talk, the things you laugh at, the things that you value, how all these things are shaped just by the region of the world you grow up in. Verse 7, the Lord is David's counselor. Even at night, in the quiet of his heart, as he meditates on the words of the Lord, the Lord instructs him and guides him and counsels him. Verse 8, the Lord is David's right-hand man. He's there to help and to defend David so that David can say that he is unshakable. Verse 9, the Lord is David's joy. He says, my heart is glad, my whole being rejoices. Also, the Lord is David's security. He says that my flesh dwells secure because I have taken refuge in the Lord, because I see him as my beautiful inheritance. I have nothing to fear, but I dwell secure. Beloved, can you, can you sing this song? This song is not just for David, right? This song is for all God's people through all the ages. In the midst of deep pain and loss and incredible blessing, this is how we can and should sing to the Lord. It's like a theme song for our hearts. Faced with the need for preservation, I hope that we ourselves are directed to steadfast hope in Christ. Briefly turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10. Verses 32 through 39. 
the author of, of Hebrews says, recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with suffering, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. What? You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. When you talk about seeing things through a different lens, that is seeing things in a new light. You joyfully accepted this because you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, verse 35, I love this, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. You do need endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised for, and this is a quote, yet a little while, the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. Verse 39, but we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed. We are of those who have faith and preserve their souls. We are of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Psalm 16 concludes, you make known to me, David says, the path of life. Uh, David anticipates this path, but eventually David dies. I hope you understand that. Eventually this psalm takes a turn where David does die. His body does see corruption. That's what happens. But, but in a sense, his body sees corruption. In another, in another more lasting way, this psalm holds even greater truth and promise for us. See, the, the true path of life that David is thinking of is none other than Jesus Christ. Um, I know this because in, in the book of Acts, we won't go there, but in chapter 2 and in chapter 13, Peter and then Paul, uh, separate times, they identify Jesus as, like they quote this passage, and they identify Jesus as the Holy One who doesn't see corruption. But I hope you understand that doesn't make Psalm 16 now irrelevant to you or me because, well, this is about Jesus. This is a prophecy. It has nothing to do with us anymore. No, 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 no. The, the, the promise of Psalm 16 is made greater and in fact secured because it is ultimately about Jesus. Jesus doesn't see corruption. He is the Holy One. But if you are in him, the exact same thing can be said of you. See, Jesus Christ died, he was buried, and he rose again. And so too is everyone found in him by faith. We're preserved when we take refuge in the Lord, the all-sufficient source of everything good, and through the gospel, our greatest good himself. David says in verse 11, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Let's pray. Father, what, what truth lies here in your word? We come burdened with all kinds of things. 
struggling with all kinds of things, facing circumstances, big and small. It's all relative. But what is transcendently true is that you are sovereign over all things and you delight to do good for your people. You work all things for the good of those who love you, who are called according to your purpose. That's what your word says. But this hope isn't grounded in some sort of naive optimism. No, this is grounded in the truth, in the, in the absolute sacrifice that Jesus himself made. Uh, he's the Holy One who conquered sin and death and hell. And if we are in him by faith, we too conquer sin and death and hell. What is there that stands against us as your people? There's nothing. There's nothing. There, there, is, there, is, no, there is no sin. There is no disease. There is no hopeless state of mind that can overwhelm us beyond hope. Lord, help us to see the bigger picture. Help us to scale back, to look to you. Would you train, would you incline our hearts to look to you? And find joy and find hope in Jesus' name. And we ask that, even now, in his name. Amen. Amen.